today found in Luke, and if you'll turn with me there to Luke 22. Luke 22. We're going to be reading verses 18, uh, 14 through 20. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down, this is Jesus, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Dear Lord, we come before you in expectation, looking to hear from you, Lord. That's why we're here. We thank you for using your servant Paul to speak your truth to us. And we pray that you would continue that today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the things of you and that you would grow us and guide us and encourage us. And make us stronger that we may better serve you for the rest of our days. So, Lord, use your servant Paul mightily. Give him great passion for the words that you have laid on his heart. And bless him with clarity of thought and clarity of speech. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we were doing uh, communion today, I decided that uh, we would... Skip to this passage in Luke um, because it really is a, a critical passage when it comes to understanding God's oaths. Um, and let me just uh, say a few preliminary things. You know, when we take an oath, as we don't often do, but we do if we're at court, we have to take an oath to tell the truth. What we're doing is that we're putting our character on the line, as it were, and uh, there are also consequences for perjury, consequences for not telling the truth. And that is also the case when it comes to the oaths that we find in Scripture. Often in Scripture, what we find is that not only is a person's character being spoken about when they're pledging or vowing to do something, but also if they don't do it, there are consequences that come. It was uh, things like that that prompted me many years ago to ask a very basic question, which is why then does God himself take oaths? I mean, after all, who's going to give him consequences if he breaks his word? 
you know, there's nobody going to challenge God. There's nobody going to um, say, well, you didn't come through on your pledges, on your oaths. Why then does God do it? Why does he take oaths to do certain things? Isn't this the God whose yes is yes and no is no? Isn't this the God who is truth? The God who cannot lie? Cannot entertain falsehood? Hates lies of every sort who commands us do not bear false witness? Isn't it this God? Therefore his word should be enough, yes? He doesn't have to take a a pledge, a vow, an oath to do something, but he does. Why does he do it? The only answer is, it's not that we doubt, oh sorry, that he, uh, as it were, has to uh, put himself under this kind of uh, uh, grave uh, pledge in order to remind himself to do something important. Neither is he concerned with uh, us, as it were, uh, doubting him because his performance as far as truth-telling, as far as doing what he says he's going to do, is... Uh, somewhat questionable so that we have as it were reason for doubting God no the reason that God takes oaths is because he's gracious because he's humble is because God knows your heart and my heart God knows we have a tendency not to believe him. Don't we? There are all all kinds of reasons why we may not believe God. The first reason is we don't like what he says. We don't like the claims he makes. We don't like the fact that he's God and we're not God. We don't like the kind of God that he is. We don't like the fact that he represents truth and holiness and righteousness and, and uh, goodness and all those things that just spoil life, you know? Make life a drag. We've all been there, yes? Because we think that um, the way of excess, the way of you know, partying, drinking, swearing, cussing... Um, not thinking about other people so that we can have a good time, putting ourselves first and so on, that that's the way to be fulfilled. That's the way to really enjoy life to the full. So we don't like God who says, thou shalt not do that. We don't realize that God says that to us for two reasons. First of all, because uh, he's God and uh, he has a right to tell us, his creatures, what to do. And then secondly, because those things that we think are fun 
are actually uh, affect us negatively and are destructive and are decaying and let's not forget it and let's be honest, superficial. They don't fill the hole in our heart. They don't fill the hole, the, the reason that we're here. They don't answer the question. What they do is that they divert, they divert our attention away from what life's about. So God says, don't do that. But God also makes oaths to us so that we, who like to do our own thing, who like to be independent of God, who like to make our own decisions, who doesn't, don't like to be told what to do, even if it's by somebody who is loving and beneficent and knows much more than we do. He makes oaths to us because of our tendency just to kind of adapt what he says to the way we think it ought to be. And we've all found ourselves doing this when we've read the Bible. Okay? The Bible says one thing, and we put our own spin on it, our own interpretation upon it. People say, you've all heard this, it's a great excuse from somebody who, again, they're in the first category, they don't want to believe God. They've said, well, the Bible can mean anything you want it to mean. That's true. So can this hymn book. So can this forgiveness seminar thing. Of course it can. Words can be twisted and corrupted out of their meaning. You can talk to me about something. You can use the best diction and grammar that you can conjure up and I can twist what you say. Of course. You can interpret anything the way you want to interpret it. That's a mere truism. It doesn't actually mean anything, does it? The question really is, yeah, but what is he saying? What am I saying? What is the hymn book saying? What is the Bible saying? And yeah, there are difficult things in the Bible. I've been studying it for a long time. Many of you have been studying it for a long time. You know there are difficult things in the Bible, and that's why we keep studying it. But a lot of the Bible is really pretty simple. And the problem that people had, or most of the time, with Jesus' teaching was not that it was somehow obscure, but it was too direct. It was too much to the point. God wants us to believe him. The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, I can uh, know, I know a great way of never pleasing God. And that is to ask the question, which Satan did right at the beginning of the Bible, has God said? Has God said? Has God said what he appears to say in the Bible? We just twist it a bit. We just use 
I don't know, we can use typology, we can spiritualize it, we can use allegory, we can use all of these different ways of reading the Bible to avoid what it's actually saying, what the words in a sentence mean. If we choose to do that, and God, therefore, knowing our propensity to do that, I know this is a long introduction, it's all right, I'm getting somewhere here. Um, Knowing our propensity not to believe him, when it's about important things, really important things, swears an oath so we will listen more carefully, hopefully, anyway. It's like God getting on the loudspeaker and saying, listen particularly to this. This is what I'm pledging to do. So that means that what I'm, I'm pledging to do now, I'm going to do in the future. Believe it. Trust in it. I've asked this question to you earlier. Does anybody here, that's it, I'm talking to Bible believers. If you're not a Bible believer, then, um, you know, I'm not judging you or anything like that, but I know the answer to, the, to this question that you would give. So I'm talking to Bible believers. Does any Bible believer here believe that God is going to bring a global flood upon the earth. Why not? Because he promised, because he says, because he made a covenant not to do it. You see, you believe that promise of God. You believe that oath that God took and he wants you to believe the other oaths that he took. He wants you to believe That if you've trusted in Jesus, hanging and dying on a cross, shedding his blood for your sins, dying, defeating death and rising from the dead on your behalf, that you will be given the gift of eternal life. You will be forgiven by God. God takes an oath for you if you believe that. What he's trying to say to you, what he's shouting at you about is that listen to this and believe it. For your soul's sake, for your future's sake, for your life's sake, believe it. Which brings us to this passage in Luke 22. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has already told his disciples that uh, he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to be given over to the Jews, and uh, they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles Gentiles are going to crucify him, and he's going to rise again. It's already uh, said the disciples didn't really get this, and when it did dawn on them, like it did on Peter in Matthew 16, he got the wrong end of the stick, which was typical for Peter, And he rebuked Jesus because he thought that that was the right thing to do, not realizing that avoiding the cross was exactly what Satan wanted Jesus to do. But look at the words here as we look at this uh, Lord's Supper, the first institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22 starting here at uh, verse 14. 
When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, these are the first words that he gives uh, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, with fervent desire, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the first thing to notice here is that that's bad grammar. Why does he use bad grammar? Because he's trying to reinforce to us and to his disciples there that this is really important to him. What he's going to describe, what he's going to talk about is of tremendous importance to him. He has desired it fervently. This is what his mission was all about. So he wanted to celebrate this Passover with his disciples before I suffer. Before I suffer. He wanted to um, put across to his disciples and through the word of God to us what these elements mean. He wanted to do that before he died. In fact, uh, this is the same night, Paul tells us, that he was betrayed. Uppermost in his mind was what we're going to look at here. So again, in or out? Are you in or are you out? Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Why would he desire so fervently to just go through this, uh, this little ceremony to give these simple words, this remembrance? It's because of the huge significance, as we'll see in a moment, the huge significance of what he's about to do. We can't do this. We can't go through this with him. He goes through this alone. He presents himself to God after his death and after his resurrection alone, but on our our behalf. And it is because he knew of the magnificent, the wonderful, and the eventual eventual world-changing consequences of what he was about to do that his desire was so fervent. He knew that he wouldn't be returning to heaven and to eternity alone. He knew that the life and the blessedness, the peace, the love, the joy, the lack of suffering, the absence of tears, the absence of Satan, that that was to be enjoyed by millions upon millions of believers in him. 
If this was all about him, he needn't have come and done this. It was about you. It was about me. And his desire was to have you where he is. For you to experience what he experienced from eternity and will experience from eternity. For you to experience life to the fullest. Life with God. Life without sin. Life without temptation. Life without violence. Life without evil thoughts. He saw all of that in what he was about to do and he wanted to memorialize it in a simple ceremony. That's why he was so excited over this. And so continuing here, verse 16, he says, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, this tells us two simple things. First of all, the kingdom of God isn't now. The kingdom of God isn't now. If you think he was, that the, the fulfillment of his work is the world that we're living in, well, I'm sorry, but you're crazy. And you must think God's crazy too. This world is evil. I'm afraid it is. No, there are good things. I'm not saying that don't be, you know, don't go out for walks in the countryside. I'm not saying don't enjoy the good things that God has put into the world. But beware. Because there are evil people out there. There are evil things out there. There are diseases. There are calamities. And then there's the human heart. Which, by the way, includes your heart. Kingdom of God hasn't come. But the kingdom of God will come. It will be fulfilled. Which means there is going to be a change, a huge sea change that's going to be made in this world. Because this is God's world. And Jesus came to God's world to change God's world. And it hasn't changed yet. But I'm absolutely certain because of the covenant that it's going to change. I have faith in that. And that faith, I know, pleases God. Nothing about this world can be called the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes and you are ushered into it, you see it, you understand it, you experience it, uh, you'll know the difference. 
the contrast would be so great, so wonderful, so transporting, so beyond anything that you can think about or imagine right now that you will be without any doubt at all about its fulfillment. Jesus is waiting for that fulfillment. So he sits by the throne of God in heaven right now as a man, resurrected, yes? He's the God-man, but he's as a man sat in heaven awaiting his second coming. He's not up there celebrating apart from us. He's up there interceding. He's up there preparing. One day, he's going to call us to himself, and then there's going to be a celebration. Then he'll partake of these elements, or at least in a very, very uh, more grand way, what these elements signify. The kingdom of God is coming The kingdom of God is assured. And it's because Jesus knew the kingdom of God is going to come to this earth that he was so desirous of us to know about what the elements meant. So, it says... Verse 17, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is the body, is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've already looked at this, but notice it says, This is my body given for you. In the book of Hebrews, the author speaks about a body that has been prepared for Christ. A body that has been prepared for Christ. I can't expound it here. It would take us too far off the field. But if God has prepared a body for Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world so that he could come into the world as a man really, truly inhabiting a body like this so that he could go to the cross on our behalf, not as a spirit being, but as a real physical being. Then, obviously, what we are, even though we're fallen, even though, you know, these things decay and... uh, causes all kinds of problems as we get older. What we are is very special. Very special. We really are privileged to be human beings. We are privileged to be in the image of God. And never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of the fact that you are the image of God. Never lose sight of the fact that your neighbor is the image of God. He might be a pain in the neck. But he's still in the image of God. Jesus came 
because God values his image in you. And in some sense, although the image is obviously uh, somewhat internal to do with our, uh, the characteristics that God has given to us as, as uh, human beings, I think there is also a sense in which our bodies, the human body, images God too. It's a secondary sense, but it's an important sense because Jesus' body, remember, was prepared for him before the foundation of the world. And I like to think that God, when he was preparing the human body, when he was thinking about, as it were, what we were going to look like, what we were going to be like, how we were going to function, he didn't first think of Adam as the prototype. He thought about his son, who would come into the world as a human being. And he's the prototype, as it were. And Adam is made like him. And all of us are made like him. The first idea, the first prototype, as it were, blueprint, is the body of Jesus Christ. When you think about it that way, then you start to see a little more how valuable we become in God's sight. And this body, this sinless body, because Jesus was sinless, is given up for us. He came into the world to die cruelly for us. Are you okay, Arlene? Okay. So the bread that we took, it signifies a body that is given up, that dies on our behalf. But it signifies also more than that. It signifies a new body. Because Jesus' body didn't stay in the grave. Jesus' body rose again gloriously from the dead. Steve, can you, if she, if she needs help, if you can. Are you okay? All right. Um, Jesus' body rose from the grave and it didn't rise the same body. In other words, it didn't, it looked the same, it was him, but it was his body changed for glory. His body altered for eternity. His body, with all of the weakness and all of the um, problems that we have in being associated with a fallen world, stripped away. A body that was fit for glory. That body is also promised to you. When we take of the of the element of the bread, 
we are to remember Jesus' death, but we're also to remember that he's going to partake of the fruit of the vine and of, the, of bread and, of course, the things that they symbolize in the physical kingdom as a physical person, with us as physical people. Given for you. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper. He had taken a cup, uh, remember, before supper. And then took the bread. And then the second cup, this is the one that was uh, symbolized so much. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now, shed for you. You see, it was necessary for Jesus' blood to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no taking of your sin away. You say, why is that? I don't know all of the answer to that question All I can say is that we're told in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. God has invested in our blood the very source of our lives, as it were. And so the shedding of blood signifies the end of that life, the forfeiting of that life. Jesus forfeited his life so that he could make a covenant with you. Just like, you know, the Noahic covenant. Remember the Noahic covenant? God said, uh, tell you what, if you build a ridiculously large boat, then uh, I promise to save you. No. God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to save you. Do you see? Because the covenant was all about not bringing that disaster upon earth again. When he made a covenant with Abraham, he covenanted that Abraham would have literal descendants. And they'd be given a literal land. That's Israel. They covenanted a land. Okay, You can't destroy Israel. Because you can't destroy God's promise. You can't destroy God's covenant. And then then through Abraham, all the families of the earth would also be blessed. Not that they'd all become Israel, but that they would be blessed through Israel. To David, he said that there would be an eternal dynasty. His seed would sit upon the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. Of course, uh, that hasn't happened for a long time, but Jesus will, when he returns, sit on a literal throne in literal Jerusalem. And then there's this covenant here. This covenant, what does it promise? It promises forgiveness of sin. Abrahamic covenant didn't forgive. promised forgiveness of sin, the Noahic covenant didn't, the Mosaic covenant did, providing you were perfect, okay? 
The Davidic covenant didn't. The priestly covenant didn't. The new covenant does. That's what it's all about. Forgiveness of sin is now available. Jesus' blood was new covenant blood, which means that if you believe in it, if you accept that he died in your place, you accept the terms of God's covenant, and God accepts you into that covenant. What did you do in order to enter into that covenant? All you did is believe. You didn't do anything. What did Jesus do in order for you to be part of that covenant? Died. Agonizingly. As the Son of God spat on and mocked naked on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Shed for you. For you is what this is all about, this passage. Okay? For you is what this is all about. God has done something for you. He has done something that is the greatest work that will ever be done upon this earth. And he's done it for you. He's done something that angels desire to look into. And he's done it for you. Don't disbelieve the oath of God that he took on your behalf. This is the blood of the new covenant, which means an oath by God was taken on your behalf. If you believe, Jesus said, you pass from death into life. Your sins are forgiven. You will enter into the joy of the Lord. God has nothing against you if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. This is the covenant to end all covenants. And in fact, it's through this covenant, and I've got to stop, uh, it's through this covenant that all of the other covenants of God will be literally fulfilled because God can literally fulfill all of the other covenants if his people are forgiven. In fact, nothing stops him fulfilling. He's obligated to fulfill those other covenants. Right now, he's not obligated because he's still dealing with sinners, rebels. Once they're forgiven, he's obligated. He's going to come through on all of the covenants that he made. Why? Because of the new covenant that Jesus Christ makes, the forgiveness that's available in him. Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Is this important to you? Or is this just something religious, something religious people do? You know, there are lots of religious things you can do. Okay, Lots of religions out there you can believe. And none of them, (coughs) excuse me, deal with your personal sin, which is really handy. None of them tell you that you're a sinner in trouble with God. They say that you can be your own savior. You meditate enough, you just, 
you know, or you do enough works, you say enough Hail Marys, whatever. But the truth is, God accepts you a sinner because of what Jesus has done. Jesus wants you. In fact, he desires fervently that you take him seriously here. Because he desires fervently to have you in heaven with him. Accept his word, accept his oath, and welcome into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that as believers we'd never take the elements of the Lord's Supper in um, a casual way. That we always realize, Lord, that this is such an important ceremony to you because it, it reinforces the reality of what salvation is all about, what it costs you and what it guarantees to us. And for those, Lord, that haven't trusted in Jesus yet, Lord, oaths are for uh, an amplification of your words, calling out to the sinner, trust me, trust the gospel, and be saved. I pray that any here who don't know Jesus as their personal Savior, Lord, will trust your word and pass from death to life. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.